All right, good morning. Today we're working through uh, three of the prophets, and um, probably lesser well-known of the, the minor prophets, but uh, important nonetheless. They are um, part of the inspired Word of God, and uh, the, the order of the books that we've been looking through has largely been chronological, <coughs> so that means um, we're still working through the time where Judah now at this point has been exiled, or not, not Judah, I'm sorry, the northern kingdom of Samaria, or, or, or Israel, uh, whose capital is Samaria, has been taken away by Assyria, and the city's been conquered and destroyed. And now Judah, the southern kingdom, where Jerusalem is, is now on the brink of desperation. They, they are in desperation. They're on the brink of being uh, taken off into captivity. So these three prophets come kind of in the middle of those two uh, exiles, we could say, between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. So we're going to begin with Nahum, but before we do, let's pray and ask God to help us as we look into his word today. Father, what a great privilege it is to know you and to be known by you. It's a honor to be able to look into your word and study it together today. Lord, we don't want to take it lightly as if it's just uh, some other document or some antiquated um, piece of literature, but something that um, affects the very way that we think and what we believe and how we act and how we respond to you and your, your uh, commandments. So help us today to see you in the text of Scripture and to see our responsibility to repent and um, to avoid the coming judgment that is, is uh, deserving of all of us but can be avoided when we trust in Jesus Christ as our only means of salvation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. I'm, let's see if I can find these books. Nahum is prophesying about 650 B.C., so he's only a couple of years, a couple of decades really, away from the, the uh, time when Babylon comes in and, and decimates Judah and takes them off into captivity. Um, Judah's problems were with Assyria. Assyria, remember, was the aggressor and the oppressor, the one who actually destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel, and now they're doing damage to the southern kingdom. Now, what's going to happen here in the next couple of years is that um, Babylon's actually going to destroy Assyria or conquer Assyria, and then Babylon's going to be the new threat to Judah. But in the midst of all this tension and trouble, the question that the book seems to answer is, where is your God? Or who is in control? The Assyrians thought that they were in control, but Nahum comes to prophesy to proclaim their judgment and coming destruction in 612 B.C. And so um, they need to, to be aware of that. So the theme there in the on your handout is that God is still jealous for his people and ferociously protective of them. Therefore, they do not need to fear, for God is stronger than their enemies and will remove their strength. So here you see this, um, this jealousy of God for his people and that God is willing to fight for his enemies or fight for his people against his enemies and how his people need to fear them, fear him and, um, and trust in God's great strength. So let's turn to chapter 1 here. Chapter 1 of Nahum. Micah has already prophesied to Israel and Judah about their need to repent. 
uh, they were looking to to uh, worship God in more of an external way, not really concerned about the heart. And that's why he said, you know, that what what God asks of you is that you would humble yourself, that you would have a contrite heart. And uh, Judah's in a in a difficult position. Assyria's Assyria's already come in and wiped out Israel, the northern tribe, and so Judah's kind of left there wondering what's going to happen next. Our worst enemy has come and defeated our neighbors to the north. You know, it'd be like if some Middle Eastern company, country came in and defeated Canada, and then they defeated Mexico. And next thing you know, we're kind of left here in North America wondering what's going to happen to us. And Nahum comes on the scene in Judah and helps them to see who is in charge. Don't worry. Your enemies are winning for a time, but God is still in charge. God will judge your enemies in his time. So look at chapter 1, verse 2. You can see how this theme plays out here in these first couple of verses. Chapter 1, verse 2. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is his way and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The blossoms of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake because of him and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence. The world and all the inhabitants in it Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken up by him. So here you see this idea of God being an avenging God there in verse 2. And that he is looking out for his people. He will bring justice for his people. Even though, you know, sometimes, like with Judah, we like to have God bring out justice bring on justice right away. You know, justice for our enemies, those who oppose us, those who persecute us. And yet God says, listen, it's coming. Just just trust me. Um, <clears throat> in contrast to the Assyrian gods and their great leaders, God is great in power in verse 3. It says, uh, He comes in a whirlwind and a storm and His clouds and the clouds are the dust beneath his feet. It shows kind of his universal power over the whole universe. He's not some um, local deity. That's what the, the gods of Assyria were like. They were local deities. They would have responsibility over, let's say, the river or the sun or, you know, or the agriculture or fertility or whatever the case. And, and here you have God who's riding in. You kind of just picture this great being coming in on the clouds. He, he is over all. And the point of all this is that God is greater than Judah's enemies. Would someone read verses 7 and 8? All right. So the Lord is good and a stronghold in the day of trouble. So... God is powerful over Judah's enemy. In verse 15, something that's slightly different about Nahum is that he does not end with prophecy. If you were to go to the end of the book, you wouldn't see that he ends it with grace, but rather he ends the prophecy um, more with judgment and expectation of, of, of coming trouble. Um, but you do see a sign of a hope of a sign of hope here, some deliverance in chapter one, verse 15. It says, "Behold." 
On the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace. Celebrate your feasts, O Judah. Pay your vows, for never again will the wicked one pass through you. He is cut off completely. So the rest of the book is really a prophecy about the fall of Assyria. And in that way, it actually is a, a, a sign of hope for, for, um, for Judah. The capital of Assyria is Nineveh. And so this is after the time that Jonah had come and, and they had repented. And now they're actually turning, at least their leadership. This is, could be a generation after. I, I forget exactly when Jonah wrote, but um, this could be a generation later. So don't think that their repentance was not true there in, in the book of Jonah. So what we learned from this is that God is, is always jealous and protective of his people with a godly kind of jealousy. Don't think of jealousy always as evil. Um, it's the kind of jealousy that a husband should have for his wife when um, you know she's starting to dabble with uh, other men or something like that, that the husband ought to have a right kind of jealousy for her love. And so um, God is that way with his people. He's made this covenant with them, and he expects for them to love him. And when they start to turn away to other gods, God right, rightfully wants to have them love him. And there's no higher being, there's no better person to love than God. Um, all right, well, I have a little bit more we can say, but we got three videos to watch today. They're all pretty short videos, but um, I do want to um, I do want to have time for each of them. So let's look at the first one right now. announcing the downfall of one of Israel's worst oppressors, the ancient empire of Assyria, and its capital city, Nineveh. The Assyrians arose as one of the world's first great empires, and their expansion into Israel resulted in the total destruction and exile of the northern kingdom and its tribes. The Assyrian armies were violent and destructive on a scale that the world had never seen before, and so Israel and its neighbors were awaiting the downfall of Assyria, which eventually came in the year 612 B.C. The Babylonians rose up and began a rebellion that overtook Nineveh and brought down the Assyrian Empire. And so, chapter 2 depicts the fall of Nineveh in vivid poetry, and chapter 3 then explores the downfall of the empire as a whole. But this book isn't just an angry tirade against Israel's enemy. The introductory chapter shows us that there is way, way more going on here. The book opens with an incomplete alphabet poem that begins by describing a powerful appearance it's very similar to how the previous book, Micah, begins, and how the next book, Habakkuk, is going to conclude. And it's God, the all-powerful creator, coming to confront the nations and bring his justice on their evil. And the poem opens by quoting from the famous line of God's self-description after the golden calf incident in the book of Exodus, chapter 34. The Lord is slow to anger. He's great in power. He won't leave evil unpunished. And so the rest of the poem goes back and forth, contrasting the faith of
good news for the remnant of God's people. It's a direct allusion to Isaiah's good news about the downfall of Babylon. And so all of these little details in chapter 1, they come together to make a key point. For Nahum, the fall of Nineveh is being presented as an example, as an image of how God is at work in history in every age. How he won't allow the arrogant or violent empires of our world to endure forever. So the message of Nahum is actually very similar to that of Daniel. Assyria stands in a long line of violent empires throughout history. And Nineveh's fate is a memorial to God's commitment to bring down the violent and the arrogant in every age. With this perspective from the opening chapter, the book then returns to its focus on Assyria. And so chapter 2 describes the battle of Nineveh and the overthrow of the city in progressive stages. So first we see the front line of Babylonian soldiers. And then we read about the charge of the chariots. And then the chaos on the city walls is breached, then the slaughter of Nineveh's people, then the plundering of the city. Chapter 3 goes on to describe the results of the city's downfall for the empire as a whole. So Nahum begins by announcing a woe upon the city whose kings built it with the blood of the innocent. It's an image of how injustice was built into the very system that made Assyria so successful. But their violence has sown the seeds of their own destruction, and so Assyria will fall with a taunt against the fallen king of Assyria, who's stricken with a fatal wound, and from among all the nations that he once oppressed, no one comes to help him. Rather, they sing and celebrate his destruction. And that's how the book ends. Now, this is a gloomy book, but it's important to see how Nahum's message addresses the tragic and perpetual cycles of human violence and oppression in every age. Human history is filled with tribes and nations elevating themselves and using violence to take what they want, resulting in the death of the innocent. And the book of Nahum uses Assyria and Babylon as examples to tell us that God is greed and that he cares about the death of the innocent and that his goodness and his justice compel him to orchestrate the downfall of oppressive nations. And God's judgment on evil is good news, unless, of course, you happen to be Assyria. Which brings us all the way back to the conclusion of that opening poem in chapter 1, which tells us that the Lord is good and a refuge in the day of distress. He cares for those who take refuge in him. And so the little book of Nahum invites every reader to humble themselves before God's justice and to trust that in his time he will bring down the oppressors of every time and place. And that's what the book of Nahum is all about. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God, but it is a wonderful thing to fall into the hands of a loving Father. And God gives us the choice. Are you going to follow me? Um, you take refuge in me? I'll, I'll provide refuge for you. But, but uh, if you turn from me, you will receive my hand of, of judgment discipline. Any questions on Nahum? All right. Habakkuk. Forty years later, after Nahum, about 610 B.C., have Habakkuk coming, coming along. And um, so we're still between the fall of the two kingdoms. The northern kingdom has fallen. The southern kingdom is about to fall. And the difference now is that Assyria is no longer the threat on Judah during Habakkuk's time. And the evil in Judah is rampant. And so 
Habakkuk's initial prayer is, God, what are you going to do about the evil in Judah? I mean, this is getting out of hand. Aren't you going to enforce justice on your own people? So now Assyria is not the threat. Um, and, and we have all this sin that's going on in, in Judah. And God's reply is essentially, don't worry, justice will come. So let's look, look at Habakkuk's prayer to God in chapter 1, verse 2. How long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? I cry out to you, violence, yet you do not save. So here he's talking about violence within Judah. And God says, listen, settle down. Justice will come, but it's just not going to come how you expect. It's not going to come through Assyria. Instead, it's going to come through the Babylonians. Verse 5, look among the nations, observe, be astonished. Wonder, because I am doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, Babylonians, the fierce, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. So, here Habakkuk's wondering, how long, O Lord, are you going to allow injustice to continue here in Judah? And God's response is, don't worry. Babylon's coming to bring about judgment on my people. And so Habakkuk's response is going to be one of, well, how can that be? We're wicked, but they're more wicked. And how can you use a more wicked nation than us to judge us? That doesn't make sense. And God's going to respond to him, and then Habakkuk's going to be respond to God's response. So a long theme there of Habakkuk. God is sovereign over even the actions of the wicked, for even in their wickedness they serve God's purposes. However, God is not indicted for evil himself, for they will be judged for their own wickedness in due time. Thus, the people of God should patiently wait and trust in their God and worship him. Habakkuk is just a book of prophecy that's filled with rich theology and uh, one that is good for you to meditate on. And um, lots of talk about God's sovereignty and even God's sovereignty over the evil acts of men that God even has the, the control to allow someone like wicked Babylon to accomplish his purposes. And that's what we see here in this book. Um, there's an outline that will help you um, as you read through the book on your own, just on the back of the handout. It's helpful to kind of understand where you're at, who's talking. Sometimes it's difficult. Um, some of these places you just can get lost. And if you have a, a helpful outline like this, then then it can um, can be beneficial as you're reading through the book yourself. So the problem we saw in chapter 1, verse 2, the people of Judah are behaving violently and Habakkuk wants justice. And then God uh, responds there as we saw and, um, and he says, I'm going to bring on the Chaldeans. Then in uh, chapter 1, verse 12 through chapter 2, verse 1, Habakkuk is not happy with that answer. Uh, yeah, you can judge us, but judge us some other way. You know, maybe through some kind of natural catastrophe or, you know, maybe send some godly people to <laughs> to carry out the judgment in some way. I, I don't know exactly how, but, but the Babylonians are not the answer. Look at verse 12, chapter 1. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We will not die. You, O Lord, have appointed them to judge, and you, O Rock, have established them to correct. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil." And you cannot look on wickedness with favor. 
Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? Judah's saying, listen, I'm, I'm not perfect, but you know, certainly I'm not as wicked as the Chaldeans. Why would you use the wicked in this way? Why would you just ignore their sin? Why would you, maybe in, in our language, condone what they're doing? That's what it looks like to me. Habakkuk's making an assumption that God's actually approving of their evil, but he's not. The, the question really at the heart of Habakkuk's frustration is, how can God both be good and sovereign? Right? We can understand a good God who's not sovereign. Right? He, he wants to do lots of good things, but he can't because he just doesn't have the power to affect all the changes in the world. Or you can have a God that's sovereign, right? that he, he knows what's going on and he actually controls all things, but he, he must not be good because there's evil going on in the world. And, and Habakkuk is saying, how can you have both? I know you, God, and you are good, and so how can you use this wicked nation to accomplish your purposes? And God's answer comes in chapter 2. Would someone read verses 2 and 3? God here wants to answer Habakkuk's question, but he also wants to be absolutely understood because what he's about to say is going to come to pass even if Habakkuk doesn't like it or even if Habakkuk has to wait a little while. And so what is the answer? What is it that Habakkuk is called to understand and wait upon? He has to actually write this down. Get, get, a, get out a tablet and start writing. Here's the answer in verse 4. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. The rest of chapter 2 is about the judgment of those who are the proud ones or the puffed up. God's saying, I won't just wipe everyone away. That was Habakkuk's issue, right? You have called these people. You've chosen these people. These are yours. You can't just abandon them and destroy them all. God's saying, I'm not doing that. Instead, those who are just, the righteous ones, will live because of their faith. And that's what it means to be just. It means to live by faith. In other words, God brings judgment. Not everyone is going to receive the same kinds of treatment, but, but those who are faithful will live. And so even if for Habakkuk and the other godly people from Judah, it looks unfair right now, Everyone's going to be judged for the sins and, um, and for their, their faith, or whether they had faith or not. And what God is telling to Habakkuk is, you need to wait. The faithful will be saved. You may not like how it's coming. You may not like when it's coming. But it's going to happen. There's going to be a clear judgment of the righteous and the wicked. And of course, we see that theme come through in the New Testament, don't we? That, that we are not saved because of our works. We are not saved because of who we are or what we have done. We are saved because of what Christ has done. And our only response is one of faith. That's the only thing that God will accept. 
And so Paul actually quotes this verse twice. Romans 1.17, Galatians 3.11. He quotes this Hebrews 2.4. The righteous one will live by faith. And the writer of Hebrews quotes it as well in Hebrews 10.38. And Paul's argument is whether you're Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter. Because the way that you are justified is by faith alone, not by works, not by ethnicity. And that's what God is telling the people of Judah. Listen, it's not because of who you are. You're not exempt from judgment just because you're of a certain ethnic group. But rather, you will be judged if you don't live by faith. It's kind of reminds me of what we've been looking through here with Nicodemus. You know, Nicodemus comes thinking, I've got it all set. You know, I, I've looked at the law, I've obeyed the law, and so I, I should be good. And Jesus says, no, actually, you need to, you need to be born again. And Jesus goes on to explain what it means to be born again. It means to be born from above, to be born of God, to be born of the Spirit. It means that God has to regenerate you. And the way that that, that is expressed in your actions is through your faith, right? Those who believe in Him will not perish but have eternal life. So there is a, a response that, that Nicodemus was to have. And I think the people of Judah were kind of thinking the same thing. Hey, we, our pedigree says we're okay. And God says, no way. The just ones will live by faith. That's what it always comes down to. It's not about ethnicity. It's not about works. It's about, it's about faith, which is actually a gift from God. The final chapter in Habakkuk then is Habakkuk's response to God. Now that he's, God's explained his side, that Babylon's going to be the judge, Judah's going to have a remnant, and they need to... They need to turn to God and repent. Here's his conclusion in chapter 3, verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive shall fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. And he has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on my high places. So here, Habakkuk is, has a completely different tone than at the beginning when God said Babylonian, the Babylonians are coming. Uh, he would not have said something like this there. Now that God has explained himself and has told him about his sovereignty and how he is working to bring all people under um, uh, judgment or vindication, then Habakkuk says, listen, even if all of the figs are gone and, and all of the barns are empty, I will exult in the Lord, and He is my strength. Any questions on Habakkuk? One of the most powerful books in the Old Testament that has to do with God's sovereignty. Certainly Job's right up there. Um, but, but how God clearly works, uh, even through things that we like to <clears throat> maybe put off into another category. Like, we like to think that God is sovereign, and sovereign over all the good things in life. You know, we like to think that. But then when we start thinking about these things over here, like, wait a second, you know, the, the ISIS, God's sovereign over that too? Um, that, that's a little bit harder to swallow. And, and um, a book like this will help form and renew your mind 
if you if you uh, chew on it, think about it, and and uh, certainly do it within the context of the rest of Scripture. All right, let's take a look at the video, and then we'll see if you have any other questions.
The fourth woe targets the abuse of alcohol as a response against leaders. While people are suffering under their bad leadership, they're partying and wasting their money on sex and booze. And the last woe exposes idolatry, the engine that drives them. They have made money and power and national security into their gods, offering these allegiance at all costs. And so people become slaves to their own national gods. Now the practices described here aren't unique to Babylon, but that's part of the point. Given the human condition, most nations eventually become Babylon. And so this is how God's answer to Habakkuk in his book becomes God's answer to all later generations, to anyone who lives in the world ruled by other Babylons. But it leaves the question hang. Is God going to let this cycle, the rise and fall of Babylon-like empires, go on forever? And that question is what chapter 3 is about. We're told that this is a prayer of Habakkuk, and it begins by Habakkuk pleading with God to act now in the present like he has in the past, you know, in bringing down threats on Israel. And what follows is a very similar to the appearance of God at Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus. There's cloud and fire and earthquake. When the Creator shows up to confront human evil, everybody will be vanquished. Habakkuk then goes on to describe this future defeat of evil as a future exodus. So just like God came as a warrior to split the sea in his battle against Pharaoh, Habakkuk says that God will once more bring his judgment down on the head of the evil tyrant. So Pharaoh, like Babylon, All right, Zephaniah. Oh, any questions on Habakkuk? All right, Zephaniah prophesies about 30 years before Habakkuk, so we're going back a little bit, but 640 B.C. And it's a very simple um, book. He's just calling for repentance like the prophets often do. The day of God's judgment is near. In, verses four, uh, cha- in chapter 1, verses 4 through 6, you see God coming to judge false gods. So I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against, and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place and the names of the idolatrous priests along with the priests and those who bow down on the housetops to the host of heaven and those who bow down and swear to the Lord and 
yet swear by Milcom and those who have turned back from following the Lord and those who have not sought the Lord or inquired of Him. So God is coming to judge the false god, but since those gods aren't real, their judgment must come upon the worshipers of the false gods, right? I mean, what are you going to do to false gods that are inanimate and actually can't do anything? And so chapter 2, verse 3, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth. You've carried out His ordinances. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you'll be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. For Gaza will be abandoned and Ashkelon a desolation. Ashdod will be driven out at noon and Ekron will be uprooted. So these are the four of the five Philistine cities. And he's saying, you know, instead of judging the, the, the actual gods, I'm actually judging the, the places where those gods are worshipped. They will be places of des- desolation. But this time of wrath is, uh, or this day is not just a day of wrath. It's also a day of salvation. Look at chapter 3, verse 9. But then I will give to the peoples purified lips that all of them may call on the name of the Lord to serve Him shoulder to shoulder from beyond the river, the rivers of Ethiopia. My worshipers, my dispersed ones, will bring my offerings. And then he goes on in verses 14 and 15 to call for them to triumph in, in their exalted God and his, his victory there. And so the focus here is on, um, on the people of Judah to repent and not be like the... the the pagan nations, and certainly we can learn from that that we need to fear God more than we fear um, the world, more than we fear our enemies. We need to accept that God is in control and that He actually does love His people like Habakkuk instructs us, and then we also need to uh, glory in our God who will triumph over evil uh, like we see here in Zephaniah. So let's look at this final video and then we'll uh, see if you have any questions and we'll pray and be dismissed. Zephaniah never mentioned this battle. 
It is because he wants to highlight God's role in orchestrating the rise and fall of the city. And actually, that's what gives Zephaniah hope. Not that Jerusalem as a whole can avoid its fate, but in the closing poem of chapter 1, he calls on anyone in Jerusalem who would speak to the Lord. And he says, these will make up the faithful remnant, the people who could be spared if they fall. In the second section, Zephaniah widens his focus to include the nations around Judah. So the Philistines, the Moabites, the Ammonites, even the Assyrians. He accuses all of them of corruption and violence and arrogance. And he predicts that all of them will fall before Babylon too. And what's shocking is that the final people group targeted in this section are the Israelites in Jerusalem. It's like the leaders and prophets and priests of Israel are so corrupted and violent, so estranged from their God, that he doesn't even recognize them as a people anymore. And so this section ends with God's final decision. He says he's going to gather up all the nations, including Jerusalem, and pour out his burning indignation. God's justice becomes this consuming fire that devours evil from the earth, which is really intense. And so the following line that brings us into the final part of the book comes as a total surprise. We discover that this burning fire of divine judgment is not aimed at destroying people. Rather, its purpose is to purify the nation, including Jerusalem. So the section begins as God says that he's going to heal and transform the rebellious nations into one unified kingdom. And then after being purified, they're going to turn from their evil and call upon the name of the Lord. These images point to the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham all the way back to Genesis 12, that God would find a way to and Jerusalem as well. The conclusion of the book focuses on the restoration of the city at the center of the nation. God's presence is there in the restored city, along with that faithful remnant that's been humbled and transformed by God's mercy. And they're called to sing and rejoice. And then in this striking image, we're told that God is the poet and he wants to sing too. Your God will live among you and he will celebrate you with songs of joy, Zephaniah says. The closing poem of the book ends with these very powerful images gathering up into his family the outcasts and the poor and the broken, where he exalts them into a place of honor. And that's where the book ends. This little book of Zephaniah, it contains some of the most intense images of God's justice and love that you find anywhere in the prophets. His justice is about his passion to protect and to rescue his world from the horror of human evil and violence. God won't tolerate horrible things that humans do to each other but he brings this justice in order to restore, in order to create a world where people can flourish in safety and peace because of his love. And so Zephaniah forces us to hold together these two aspects of God's character, his justice and his love. And he wants us to discover that together they contain the future hope of our world. And that's what the book of Zephaniah Any questions or comments on anything we've talked about today? All right. Well, let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for the reminder of your seriousness about sin, your holiness, and our responsibility to repent and believe. And we now know on this side of the cross that Jesus is the one who provided the way for us to come to you and avoid your burning wrath. And we pray that you would help us to trust in him all the way until the end. In Jesus' name, amen.